0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 32. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month that evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month that evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God.
0: You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Welcome again. <clears throat> My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's a wonderful morning. Uh, you can see we've got a lot of work to do in this text, that's a long text. Uh, we've been, many of us have been kind of waiting for this text uh, for the last several weeks. <clears throat> and uh, what a, man, just what a joy to celebrate the baptism and dedication of all those kids. Um, I don't know where my wife is, but maybe, maybe we need to have another one. I mean, that, that's kind of what it gives me, you know, we're still short of a dozen. Let's go. <clears throat> but it is a joy and we are thankful uh, for God's blessing upon our church Let me pray, and then let's open God's word together. Father, uh, you are good. You are the giver of good things, and we worship you, and we thank you for that, and one of the things you've given us is you've given us your word. You've given us this book that we call the Bible. You've given us this book of the Bible called Exodus, and it's meant to show us things about you, things about us, things about reality, and... It's meant to kind of set us free from the things that enslave us and show us how good it is to worship you. And I pray this morning that you would help me do that. Uh, I'm a sinful man. I'm a broken man. I'm a frail man who um, doesn't get enough sleep and has stresses and all these different things that can affect me. And I ask that you would just help me and you would just strengthen me, um, that your spirit would anoint your word as it, as it goes forth this morning and you, it would produce fruit in the lives of people. I pray this would be a good word in their life um, to them wherever they're at. Um, as we sit in a country that's deeply divided, maybe more deeply divided than we've, we ever knew possible. Uh, Would you bring a healing balm to us? Would you remind us that you are still on the throne, that you are sovereign, that you rule over the nations of men and even the king's heart is like a stream of water in your hand and you turn it however you will, that you are in control and we find our peace and our hope not even in our political process but in our great king, Jesus, the ruler of all things. Father, would you help us hear your word this morning? Would you help me preach your word this morning? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, over the last several months, uh, we've been studying the book of Exodus, and we have seen that God's people are currently, in the book of Exodus here, in a pitiable shape. They were a small group of refugees who had grown into a large people group, so large that the king, Pharaoh, saw them and he enslaved them in order to build his empire. The Egyptians were brutal to the Israelites. They killed their male children. They beat their mothers and fathers. And they placed impossible burdens upon them in their day-to-day life. It was tough being an Israelite in Egypt. Not only that, but the Israelites were unable to worship their God in the way that God required of them. And this shows us right away through the book of um, Exodus, and, and what we should see is sin isn't just um, a moral individual response, but sin is, sin can be cultural, sin can be systemic, and, and sin is, in, its, in a big picture way, sin is oppressive. Okay? Sin is oppressive. The sinfulness of those in power oppressed God's people. They were the subjects of Pharaoh's unjust treatment and control. That's what oppressed means. You suffer under unjust treatment and control. And God hates oppression. God hates sin. This is why God, being a God of wrath, is actually good news. Theologian Wayne Grudem says this, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Now that means God intensely hates all oppression. God looks down on the Israelites being oppressed by those in power, and he says this. This is fascinating in the book of Exodus. God says, I am going to set you free. Now that's good news for the Israelites And that's good news for us as well. And for anyone who has been or is being oppressed, God hates it. God sees it. God hates it. And God promises to do something about it. Racial oppression, economic oppression, social oppression, violent oppression, all forms of oppression are sinful and God hates them as God hates all sin. But listen, God does more than just hate sin. He personally attacks it. He is wrathful toward it. His heart doesn't just break for the Israelites. Oh, my people, I'm so sad. God says, I hate it. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm coming down there and I'm going to bring you out from under that oppression. I am going to end this sin done against you. And in this text today, we see God says, there will be blood. It's interesting, as you, maybe if you've been following with us, you've noticed that God has used Moses over and over and over as his intermediary when God wants to fill the earth with gnats, fill Egypt with gnats. He says, Moses, take your hands, you know, fill, it, fill it up with dust, throw it in the air, it's going to become dust. He says, Moses, throw your staff down, I'm going to use it. He says, Moses, say this. In this instance, in the final plague, Moses isn't used. Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh. But God does this plague, this final plague, God does it himself. God doesn't need Moses. God says, I've seen the oppression, and I'm coming to end it myself. I'm coming to town. And this is what God f- foresaw, what God said to Moses in Exodus 4, 21 through 23. Listen to what he says. Before we started all these plagues, this is what God said to Moses. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This was the word God spoke in Exodus 4 to Moses before any of the other plagues. And Moses was supposed to tell Pharaoh that before any other plagues. Pharaoh should have known your son's life is on the line because you've been oppressing my son, Israel. See, God, through his covenantal grace, saw Israel as his firstborn son. And their oppression broke his heart. Now, In our society, in our culture today, many people don't want a God of wrath. They push their hands away from any kind of wrathful language. They want a God of love. But I want to show you this morning why you don't just want a God of love. The oppression done against Israel was cruel, it was violent. The most powerless people in the country, were being treated unfairly. The immigrant was being treated unfairly. The unborn was being treated unfairly. The most powerless people were being treated unfairly. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had been killing Hebrew children and oppressing their parents, trying to get everything economically out of them they could to build their empire. And this is unjust... And for a God to come in and just go, oh, it's okay. I love you both. I mean, silly Pharaoh, he just gets a little excited sometimes. No big deal. I I love you both. That would be a serious lack of love towards the Israelites. To look at their oppressors and go, ah, no big deal would be unloving towards his children, the Israelites. It would completely disregard their suffering and what they've been through at the hand of the Egyptians. No, see, what is needed here is a God of love and wrath. A God whose intimate love for his firstborn son causes him to bring justice and wrath upon Egypt for their sins and their oppression of his people. See, God's wrath says that was wrong, that was punishable, and any oppression is an an offense to my holiness and my love for my firstborn son. See, no one who has ever been the victim of oppression or abuse wants a judge without wrath. We want a judge to be a judge of wrath and judgment. That's their purpose. Because there is a victim. Because there's a victim, there must be justice. Without justice, there is no love. Can you imagine... A group of oppressors or a group of murderers or a group of rapists brought into a room and a judge come in and go, who's sorry for what they did? I'm sorry. Okay, then go free. What would that say to the victims? That would be further injustice, further abuse, further oppression to the victims. See, what we need is a God and a judge of both love and and wrath this is one reason why a God of love and wrath is a God that's more loving than a God without wrath now this is where in our text this morning things get really interesting and I'm not going to have time to go all the way through it but it repeats itself several times so we're going to get to the gist of it God has looked down at his people he's seen the oppressor And he's seen the oppressed. He's heard their cries for justice. Guys, it's been 400 years. He's heard their cries for justice. He's promised to deliver them. But now, the unthinkable happens. I want you to look at 11, verse 4. So Moses says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Now, I not you turn the page and go to twelve, twelve. This is what it says: For I, God speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Look at verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. What is God saying? God's saying this, I've seen the oppression, I've heard your cries for justice, and I'm coming to deal with it. I'm coming to town. Now, my wife told me this week that my mother-in-law is coming to town. <laughs> and when my mother-in-law comes to town, certain preparations must be made. Just so happens I'm actually leaving town. But <laughs> that's, an, that's accidental. That's just, it doesn't mean anything. But I want you to think about this. Anytime you, you know somebody's coming to town, somebody's coming to stay at your house, somebody's coming to meet you from out of town, relatives, we've got Thanksgiving coming up, you're probably going or they're coming, preparations need to be made. I can remember this as a child. Like, the only time that certain things needed to be clean was before certain holidays, right? Preparations need to be made. Now, listen, this is, this is, I want you to think about this. If God says, I'm coming to town, how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for God saying, I'm coming to visit you? This is unheard of. This isn't a natural occurrence. This isn't an everyday occurrence. God's saying, I'm coming to town. He says this, and there's some preparations that need to be made, very specific preparations for my arrival. I can imagine that the Israelites would be kind of as confused as we are if we thought that. If God's coming, what do we do? I remember seeing a bumper sticker one time that said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> and and the, like the mentality behind that is, I know when Jesus shows up, he's going to want people doing something. He doesn't want people just relaxing and laying around and enjoying them. Just do something, Right? Now, what kind of preparations do we think God wants us to make or wants them to make for his arrival? Well, God doesn't leave them to their own idea and their own concepts of what he's like and how to prepare for their arrival. He gives them very clear instructions on how to prepare for this arrival. Look at chapter 12, verse 3. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each has, you shall make account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you may keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, here's the preparation God says to make. First off, on the 10th day of this new month, take a lamb. If you're a large family, get a a, a lamb large enough to feed your entire family. If you've got a small family, go halvesies with another family. This lamb must be perfect without any blemishes. It must be male and one year old. And he says... I'll give you four days to make sure you've got the right lamb and you've made all the right preparations. And then on the 14th day, I want you to kill your lambs at twilight. And then after you kill the lamb, I want you to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of your house. And then I want you to eat the entire lamb while wearing your traveling clothes. This is no ordinary meal that you eat in your PJs and slippers. You eat this meal like you're ready to go on mission. Like you're ready to go on a journey. This will be called the Lord's Passover. Now why is it called the Passover? Chapter 12 verses 12 and 13 tell us that. For I will pass through the land. ...of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God's wrath is passing over God's Son because of blood on the doorposts. Now, I want us to see something vitally important here that I think is often missed. When God comes to town, it's not laissez faire. When God comes to town, the Israelites are in just as much danger as the Egyptians. Interestingly enough, it's not just the Egyptians who are at risk when God comes to town. The text says even the Israelites, if they come out from under the blood of the Lamb and they leave their houses, they too will be killed in verses 22 and 23. It says don't come out from under your house. What does this tell us? The Egyptians weren't the only ones who had earned the just wrath of a holy God. The Israelites, now listen, they were sufferers, but they were also sinners. They were oppressed, but they were also oppressors in some way. In fact, most of the time, as sinful people, we respond sinfully to being sinned against, do we not? We oppress others. We've been oppressed and we oppress others. But we also respond sinfully to being oppressed. By others. And all sinners deserve the just wrath and judgment of God. See, everyone, we said in our confession this morning, everyone who has failed to love God and honor God with their whole life, everyone who has mistreated their neighbor and not treated someone else the way they want to be treated, have all committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe and deserve to pay for their sins and death. We said before, because there's a victim, there has to be justice. God is the ultimate victim for our sinfulness. He's the only tru- truly innocent victim, and we have wounded him with our oppression of others, with our sin against others, with our ignorance of the poor, with our ignorance of widows, with our ignorance of the immigrant. We have sinned against him. And this also tells us that God, surprisingly here, I think, he's not nationalistic. God is not racist. He isn't just going after these wicked sinners in Egypt. He's saying, when I come to town, everyone who's, sinner, who's a sinner is at risk. Everyone with sin in their life is at risk when I come to town. He's coming to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, but Israel still needs to be sheltered from his presence. That God's wrath is going to fall upon every house in Egypt, including the Israelites. Now, I know, I don't know you, but I've met enough of folks, and I talk with enough folks, and I'm a part of this culture, and a part of this generation, and I understand that more than likely, this pushes so hard against one of your greatest assumptions, one of your deepest held assumptions about life, and about God, and about religion, and about Christianity, almost everyone that I talk to in our day and age, deep down, even if they don't vocalize it, deep down, they believe that God owes them a good life. That he would be unjust to judge them or to allow anything bad to come into their life. And that if God came to town, there would be absolutely no threat to their safety. I mean, the people who voted for that person, they would probably be under the judgment of God. But I voted for the right person and therefore, God would probably be pretty happy with me. I believe that those people who do that, they would be under the judgment of God. Maybe ISIS over there, who's killing Christians, they would be under. The, but myself, no, I, I think God would be like, when he saw me, my boy, my girl. No thanks, they say. I believe in a God of love. But I want you to see for a moment that you are making a huge assumption based on a 21st century concept of love, and that concept is deeply flawed. Love cannot be love without wrath. My love for my wife makes me wrathful to anything that could hurt her. The Israelites looked like innocent sufferers but they had also sinned against God. They had worshipped other things, responded sinfully to their suffering, and because of that, they were guilty. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of all sin is death. That means if we have sinned, we are standing under the just judgment of the wrath of God, and we deserve the punishment for our sin to be death. If God came to town right now, we would be in the same position as the Israelites and as the Egyptians. We would need shelter from the wrath of God. Now I want you to think about this. This is the difference between every other religion on the planet and Christianity. What can shelter you when the storm of God's wrath comes to town? Where can you be safe? Where can you find shelter? Where can you go to hide from the punishment that your sins deserve? Where? Every other religion on the planet says in your good works. That's where you go. Be good enough. Earn your way and reach enlightenment. Be tolerant enough. Be inclusive enough. Be a good enough person that when God looks at you, he's going to go, yep, you're the one. Every other religion on the planet looks for our own behavior, looks towards our own goodness, our own moral, ethical goodness to find shelter from the just wrath of God. We compare ourselves. Well, I'm not like Hitler. Hitler, he needs judgment, but good folks like me, we don't. But God, in Exodus here, makes it perfectly clear. Christianity is meant to be different. Look at verse 13 and 23. We've already read them, but I'm going to read them again. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He says, when the Lord sees the blood, He'll pass over I want you, I'm going to contrast two things here. One Israelite man, this man, he is an honorable Jewish man. He follows the covenant. He circumcised his sons. He worship, worships God every day. He's not, he hasn't lost the faith through all of his oppression and his violence he's experienced. And he hears these words from Moses, and he says, of course, of course, God is so faithful. Of course I will do this. And so full of faith, he led his family in devotions. He killed the lamb. They ate the lamb in the right clothing and everything. They said their prayers, and he puts the blood on the doorposts, and they worship God for his deliverance, and they go to bed and just sleep like a baby, knowing God is coming to town. They wake up in the morning. Well, I mean, let me do this before I do that. And then I want you to contrast that with another man. Let's this just is, say this is a bad Jew. This is somebody who's not devout. This is someone who's walked away from the faith of their fathers, and they've been living just, to, just for themselves their whole life. They're just out for number one. They're trying to mitigate any oppression. that They don't really care about their brother or sister or their neighbor. They're not following God's laws. They haven't circumcised their children. They're worshiping other gods. You go into their house and yeah, there's a statue for Yahweh or there's something up here for Yahweh, but then there's the statue for Ra, the sun god of of Egypt, and they've kind of brought in the gods of Egypt and they've got all these gods on their mantle and something about Yahweh up there as well. They're worshiping all these different gods. And you know what? This man, he's not a devout man and he's not full of faith. He's actually full of fear. He's afraid of this God's coming to town. What's going to happen to me and to my family when God comes to town? He was overwhelmed that God was going to kill him as a firstborn and kill his firstborn son. And this man, he 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 kills the lamb, and he puts it on the doorpost, and he can barely eat the meal because he's sick to his stomach because he's so afraid of what's going to happen when God comes to town. He prays to all of his gods at dinner table with his family. He can barely tuck his children in at night because his hands are shaking so bad because he knows this wrathful God is going to come and kill his family. He paces back and forth all night long, unable to sleep, wrestling with, Have I done enough? And at midnight, when God comes to town, which one of these men is safe? Both. The scripture does not say, when I see you, I will pass over. It says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. It's not the strength of their faith it's not the quality of their faith it's the object of their faith that saves them the answer is did they apply the blood not how much faith they had when they did it not if they were worshipping other gods when they did it not how good of a husband they were not how good of a father they were not how moral they had been that day Not if they had said their prayers. Not if they had done their devotions. The answer that God asks when he comes to town is, is there blood? And if there's blood, I'll pass over. See, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. And that is exactly what happened. Unfaithful Jew, faithful Jew, they put the blood on the door, God passes over them in judgment Is passed over. Now, what I want you to see is this. When God came to town, every house felt the wrath of God against sin. There was blood in every house. In an Israelite house, that wrath fell upon an innocent lamb. In an Egyptian house, that wrath fell upon the firstborn sons. But in every house, 12.30 tells us, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Every house, someone died. A firstborn son or a male spotless lamb. Now, why? Why did this work? Why did God come to town and looked for blood, and said, if there's blood, I'll pass over, and why the lamb, and all of this stuff? Well, I want you to see two things. First off, why did this work? Number one, it's this idea of substitution. In everyone's house, someone's going to die here for their sins. It's either a firstborn or a lamb, because the wrath of God must be poured out upon all sin your sin deserves death and someone must die but God has provided a way here for an animal a lamb to kind of to substitute to take the place of the sins of the the family alright so you see this idea of substitution but you also see this idea of satisfaction that the blood of the lamb satisfies the wrath of God now that's key When God comes to town, he says, okay, blood was shed here. The lamb died here. I'm satisfied in that. This family does not need the wrath of God or deserve the wrath of God anymore. The wrath of God has been poured out on the lamb. So in this one act, we see substitution and we see satisfaction. And another word for that that theologians use is this term called propitiation. It's a big one, I know. And propitiation is this. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. It's something that takes the wrath of God, absorbs it, takes it all away, and then turns it around into favor. It doesn't just placate Him for a moment. Now... I want you to think about this. And then here's what we see here also. This is it. This is What we see, salvation accomplished. There is nothing for them to do. God came to town. God did it. Salvation accomplished. Israel, you are now free to leave. And it's interesting because he also says, and go to your Egyptian neighbors. They're going to actually pay for it. They're going to give you some money and jewelry, and They're going to be like, get out of here. Salvation is accomplished. There's nothing left for them to do. They're free from their slave, slavery now. Now, this is the gospel, which is different than religion and different than what most people understand, moralism. This is the gospel, and it's here in the Old Testament. I meet so many people. One thing I love this morning, all of our folks that chose scriptures, I think every single one of them are Old Testament. The Old Testament is a gift to us. People miss it. They don't understand it. They think, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. It doesn't belong to me anymore. That was about law and that was about judgment. We got a different God these days. I'm going to get to that in a second. But what I want us to see is this. In John chapter one, in the Gospels, when John was baptizing people and Jesus walked up, the son of the living God, he said this, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, what John was doing in that moment, it's b- brilliant exegesis, it's bibl- b- brilliant biblical theology. He's connecting the Messiah with the Lamb of the Passover. He's saying, The blood on the doorposts, the Lamb that was slain, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just Israel, but of the world. And later in Romans chapter 3, 25, Paul says that God put forward Christ, Jesus, as propitiation. He turned the wrath of God. That Jesus somehow, as a lamb, absorbs the wrath of God and turns it, towards up, and turns it into favor towards God's people. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, this is the New Testament reality of this Old Testament example and experience if you confess your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect life, he was a spotless lamb. In his substitutionary death, he was the lamb that was slain. And his resurrection and exaltation, he's the lamb that rules and reigns forever. If you put your faith in him and your trust in him and you confess your sins and you turn from them, you are placed under the blood. Just like the Israelite. You're safe from the wrath of God. You are in Christ, and even more than that, God adopts you. See, this is what's so beautiful and brilliant about propitiation is that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God and fulfills it and satisfies it. So now the wrath is turned towards favor. So there's no looking at you like, oh, I'm kind of happy with them. Oh, if they would just get their act together. Oh, I'm just waiting for them to really get moral and really get serious about the issues that concern me. There's none of that from God. Nothing but favor because his wrath has been exterminated in Christ. Been completed. It's been satisfied in Jesus. And now, for those who are in Christ, there is nothing but love and affection to be doted on us and us to dote on Him for eternity. It's nothing but love and favor and warmth and intimacy with our Father. There is no wrath. Christ absorbed the wrath, he finished the wrath on the cross. The question is, are you under the blood, not how are you living? Are you under the blood? But, interestingly enough, many of my friends say things to me like, well, Jesus died for all people, right? So I think Jesus' death kind of ended the wrath of God, and therefore we shouldn't talk about the wrath of God anymore. If God absorbed it, if God... if he paid it was propitiation, then why should we talk about a wrathful God? God's no A wrathful God was in the Old Testament, right? Before he knew better. In the New Testament, God shaped up his ways, right? He learned some things about what people wanted, calmed his person. You know, it was pre- prepubescent stage in the Old Testament. And then he went through puberty. And then in the New Testament, he's, you know, he's a little bit better. Actually, that would be opposite, I think. But he, he's kind of calmed himself down. He's not wrathful anymore. They say things, people say this to me all the time when I quote something from the Old Testament. They say, but that was the Old Testament. Now we have Jesus. But listen, I don't want to ignore this fact. We don't talk about this often. It's definitely not a subject that people want to hear in our day and age. But there's coming a day when God comes to town again. And it's not going to be cotton candy and rainbows. But for those of us who have hidden ourselves under the blood of the Lamb, it will be a glorious day. It will be a day when the whole creation kind of fractures and erupts and the new heavens and the new earth, God brings them in. But it's also going to be a day of wrath. For those in Christ, we are going to get new bodies. Sin is going to be removed from us. The curse is going to be removed from us and and all of creation. We will be reunited to all of our loved ones who have died under the blood of Jesus. And we will get to see Jesus in all of his glory as our bright and morning star. And we will worship him. And for the once in our life, we will be whole and we will be satisfied forevermore. We will never again feel the pains of suffering or the weight of sin and shame. But that will not be everyone's experience the next time Jesus comes to town. Listen to how the book of Revelation describes it in chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich. And the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You can either hide yourself under the blood of the Lamb, or one day you will find yourself trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the story that Scripture teaches us. This is the kindness and the severity of our God. This is his mercy toward us. There will will come a day where there will be no place left to hide. The only place to hide from the wrath of the lamb is under the blood of the lamb. Now, this is what it means to put your faith in Christ. You hide yourself under the blood of the lamb. Now, the last thing I want us to see is this. Really, these two chapters are about two things. The first is the Passover, what, we're talk, what we've been talking about. And the second is very interesting. He says, to, God says to Moses, I'm coming to do this. I want you to paint the blood and all that, do all this kind of stuff. But he says this, this meal that you're eating, It's a meal that's meant to be a perpetual feast. Every year you're meant to do this. This is a rite. That's a ritual. We get real nervous. Evangelicals get real nervous when you hear words about rituals. He says, this is meant to be a ritual forever. To remember the Passover. Remember the day God came to town. And the only reason you were safe wasn't your goodness, wasn't your success, wasn't your ethnicity. The only reason you were safe was the blood of the lamb. Eat this forever and remember me. Now, let's not forget, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the one who John said, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus stands up at the Lord's, well, the Last Supper is what we call it now. He stands up at the Passover feast. And what does he do? He takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the wine. He says, this is poured out. right? This is my blood poured out for you. But here's the question that we don't ask. I'll tell you what everyone there would have been thinking. Where's the lamb? Bread and herb, we got herbs and we got wine. Where's the Paschal lamb? You can't have Passover without the lamb. (coughs) 1 Corinthians 5 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. (coughs) Jesus says, I am the lamb. This is why he says, take me and no one who, if you don't eat my flesh, you can't be a part of my kingdom. If you don't drink my blood, you can't be a part of my kingdom. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. Everything about Exodus, everything you remember from the Exodus was pointing to me. I'm the lamb. We're not having a lamb at this Passover because I'm the lamb who will be slain for the forgiveness of your sins. And I will end the wrath of God towards all God's children. And here's the reality. God's a God of love. He'll always be a God of wrath. And that wrath can go one of two places. It can go to Christ on the cross and be satisfied or it can go to your own life in eternity. And that is where you'll pay the wrath of God. But why would you ignore the Paschal lamb? Why would you ignore the Passover lamb? Why would you ignore the blood that's been shed for you? The perfect spotless lamb that's been provided for you. Why would you look at that and go, no thanks. I'll try it on my own. That would be the essence of foolishness. And I pray this morning that you would see the blood That's been shed for you. And you would put your faith in Christ. Let me pray. Father, you are a God of mercy, and you are a God of kindness, and you are a God of severity, and you are a God of justice and judgment. And though that is frightful, it's also good we see brokenness, we see violence, we see oppression in our world, and we want a God who does something about it. We want a God who sides with the victim. And there's coming a day when that wrath will be poured out perfectly and you will purge the world of all evil. And how Boastful, how arrogant we would be if we thought you could purge the world of evil and not purge it of us. And yet you've given us a shelter from the wrath of the Lamb. Your Son, your one and only Son, your truly firstborn Son was sacrificed as our Passover Lamb in our place for our sins. Would you hide us under his blood. And as we come, and Jesus, you gave us this perpetual feast. You transformed the Passover for us and said, this is your body that's broken for you. This is your blood that's been shed for us. Take it and eat it as often as we come together and we do that this morning in remembrance of you. Father, we come like the Israelites, empty-handed. And you put yourself you put the lamb, you put your blood in our hands. We are hot, we are hidden in you. We eat this and worship this morning. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.